Hello everyone, and welcome to the Death by Adaptation podcast, a bi-weekly book club where we choose one classic book and compare and contrast it against its cinematic adaptation. I am your host, Nicolo Grasso, and I am joined, as always, by the great Yuan Gledo. How are you doing, Yuan? I'm doing so good. I'm I'm so sorry, I'm still deliberating on this leader of coleslaw. I don't know. I can't do it. No, I'm not going to order a leader of coleslaw. It's fine. Um, no, I'm doing do good. It. Go for I, it. I am. I, um, I don't, don't treat yourself. That. Do not say treat yourself. Do before you it. Do finals this it. week. It's um, <laughs> no, I'm doing good. I've had a nice break, um, an actual holiday uh, after several people, uh, yourself included, told me you should probably have a break, and I did, um... and I feel a lot better. I Breaks nice help. They do, yeah. It's back to work now. Twenty articles a day. Got it. Nose of the grindstone. <laughs> yeah, nah, I'm feeling good. Yeah, when when you're into it, it's it's tiring as hell. But you're kind of like, yes, but I'm I'm in the mood for work. I'm just ca- kind of getting lost in the shuffle of everything. But yeah. as, as soon as you stop, it's like, fuck, I needed this. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. It's it's you know me, Nick. Every day I'm shuffling, as, as they said back in the day. <laughs> and also, I think you guys heard uh, another voice. Our good friend Carson Timar is joining us once again for another lovely episode. Carson, how are you, man? I'm doing good, my brothers. I'm excited to be here on the podcast. I like this podcast a lot, which is why I'm on here again. It's unfortunate you're not enjoying some coleslaw right now. So, it's a thousand milliliters is a lot of coleslaw, though. Like, I can't warrant spending <laughs> six quid on just a, a what will be a bucket of coleslaw. Yeah, I I don't think six quid. That's not so bad like, though. It feels like it should be more. The the ratio of money to coleslaw is really good. Yeah, it's I'm like just almost worried it'll get wasted. I don't want to waste it. You know, I if, if I ordered it, I know I'd power through and make myself really ill because I don't like food waste. So I'd I'd actually make myself sick eating a liter of coleslaw. That's a, that's a it's good fitting for the know. episode though. It's Saturday night. <laughs> it's, I may as well. <laughs> it is Saturday night, and before we continue, I want to remind you, listeners, if you're listening to this on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, just consider leaving us. A thumbs up, five star review, whatever rocks your boat. We greatly appreciate it, you know. And now let's jump into the episode because today we're talking about a clockwork orange. Now tell me what you had in mind, Georgie boy. Oh, the old Malocco Plus first, would Malocco you not plus, say? He's something to sharpen us up. Some of the Malocco Plus. <laughs> but yeah. you especially, we have the start. Yeah, you yeah. guys <laughs> first, because we've got start on you. Yeah, Malocco Plus, eh? Yeah. <laughs> As we walked along the Flatlock Marina, I was calm on the outside, but thinking all the time. So now it was to be Georgie the General, saying what we should do and what not to do, and dim as his mindless, grinning bulldog. But suddenly I vidded that thinking was for the gloopy ones, and that the omni ones used like inspiration and what bog sends. For now it was lovely music that came to my aid. There was a window open with a stereo on, and I vidded right at once what to do. The novel of Clockwork Orange was written by Anthony Burgess in 1962, and it is a satirical, dystopian black comedy that has gone on to become 
absolutely legendary thanks to the 1971 Stanley Kubrick adaptation. Now let's start with the book itself. Anthony Burgess, writer, he worked abroad for quite a few years, he came back to the UK, and as soon as he got back in the UK in the early 60s, he saw that, you know, things have changed since I left after World War II. Just there's criminal delinquency around, just these juveniles beating people up, doing absolutely nothing with their lives, and it scared him. And so based on personal experiences of his wife and other people he knew, he ended up writing A Clockwork Orange in just three weeks, apparently, allegedly. And the story of Clockwork Orange is about a 15-year-old boy named Alex, who is an absolutely horrible person. He goes around with a gang of, of, of hoodlums that he calls droogs, and they beat people up, they abuse innocent citizens, they enter houses and just do a whole bunch of heinous things. And you spend the first part of the book getting to know Alex, because, you know, it's, it's narrated in first person, you get lost in his thoughts, um, in Burgess's interesting use of, of a, a new sort of vocabulary that we'll definitely get into. And so you you learn to, you love to hate Alex. But then finally, he gets caught, he gets his comeuppance, he goes to jail, and when he's there, he wants to leave it as early as possible because he wants to get back committing crimes because that's his only sole reason in life. What does he do? Let's, let's take this interesting Ludovico technique, let's take part into this project where, where they're going to try to fix me up, you know? Just, uh, it's going to be fun. I'll, I'll, I'll leave in just two weeks' time. No biggie, you know, no biggie. And it's done. He's dead. He, he just loses free will, basically. The free choice. Like, he becomes a slave of the machine. <laughs> Very simply. And, and, and that is kind of the core of A Clockwork Orange. A man who did horrible things because he wanted to, who then is unable to do it because of someone else's choice. His free will is removed, he goes back into the world, and things only get worse from there. So, Carson, what are your thoughts on A Clockwork Orange, the novel? Well, I mean, I'm going to ignore your, your simplification of the story of this uh the story, I guess that's not, I'm, well, I'm not good with words today. That's fun for a podcast. <laughs> so I've read this book before. My history with this whole thing is that watched the movie many moons ago, many moons ago, but less moons ago, I read the book. I've never necessarily like consumed them both at the same time until now, but focusing on the book, I, it's good. It's definitely really like difficult and hard to read considering half the words are not words. Um, he's created his own dialect. He's created his own real language. Um, mm. But I think overall, like, you know, it is really, I would say, well-written, um, visceral, violent, disturbing. Um, I think it undeniably helps, though, to read the book after seeing the movie because you already have context for the, what the world is, for what the characters mm. are, for all of that. Once you already have that visual image in your head it's much easier because you have a road to drive on i cannot mm -hmm. imagine just trying to drive reading this book and not like have that road because it is just so it really is difficult to consume um but overall i think it is a good book i think the relationship to the movie is really weird but we will get there oh yes we will yes we will you and how about you man 
Uh, yeah, I overshot it a little bit and I read this in January because I thought we were recording the podcast then. Um, I'm not very good with dates. But um, I reread it, which is, you know, quite surprising for me because I don't like to reread things so close. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, very, very good. I've got a bit more history with the film, which I watched in a double bill with Shrek in about 2016. Um, and <laughs> don't tilt your head at me. It's the perfect pairing. One's about a villain parading through the streets, harassing people, and the other is a Clockwork Orange. Um, no, it's... When I first watched a Clockwork Orange, I wasn't very keen on it, and I do think it was because I'd watched Shrek before it. Um, and I'd put it off for so long. I was dead set on it just not being a very good film. I, I think it was very middle of the road. I thought it was fine. And I watched it again yesterday. And naturally, when you've not watched Shrek before, it, a clockwork <laughs> really does improve. Um, now it was great. It was really good. And I think, like that mentioned, like I mentioned earlier, that break I had. It, it, a clockwork orange was the first film I've watched since I've actually had a break, and it was it just felt nice. so much punchier and a lot more colourful and vibrant, and it just expressed itself a little more to me when I wasn't thinking about 70 other things, when I was just really just sat and focused on that. It was really nice. It was it, A lot of it made more sense than I thought it would. It articulated itself very well. And comparing it to the book's been just a pleasure. Like It, it was an absolute mm. treat, and I'm really looking forward to this, what we're going to talk about, which I imagine is comparison of the book and the film. I don't know, I've not been on this podcast before. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, that, that that's how it works. Is that the gist of it? Is it? <laughs> that, that that's it. Yeah, that's kind of the, that's kind of what we do here, you know. <laughs> so strap in, lad. Um, my relationship with the book is actually relatively positive because this book, I read the entire book in like two days, and it was the two days where I was traveling back from the UK to Italy when lockdown lift was lifted back home, and so I had, I bought it like months. I think weeks, maybe even months before the pandemic online, because it was like sold for one pound, a used copy of it. And it came and it was a hardcover from like the 80s or 90s without a slipcover. <laughs> it was just the actual book, which is a bit ugly. But thankfully, it's the version that also has the vocabulary at the end that explains all of the slangs like, yay, yay, thanks. Now I understand what's happening in this book. And I read it throughout my travels like on the on the plane and whatnot, because it is a, a short book, like it's less than 200 pages long. It just moves constantly, never slows down. And I really like it. I, I like Burgess's style of writing. The fact that once again, like recently we've been talking a lot about stories told in first person. And this one is, oh, like, I don't think you can tell A Clockwork Orange from an outsider's perspective. And it's kind of key to what makes this so brilliant and so, uh, and they have such a long-lasting effect on everyone. Also, when the movie came out, but just the fact that you're not looking at Alex's life objectively, you're looking at it from his perspective. You understand why he loves what he does. It's twisted, it's demented, but you kind of go, okay, he's clear enjoying this, you know? <laughs> I don't want to say good for him, but, you know, he's doing what he loves, which is kind of the center and key of the story. It's just the fact that it is split into three parts, the novel, and then kind of, in a way, we'll talk about that when we go into the movie, but just 
How do you guys feel about the three different sections of the book, including the epilogue, which famously was cut from the American release, where the publisher was like, you have this story of, of this horrible guy just losing his free will and then kind of regaining his lust for evil. But then in the final chapter, he kind of goes, but you know what? I see, I see my old buddy there. It's just kind of nice now and good. Maybe I can change as well. I'm going to get a girlfriend and just not be an asshole anymore. <laughs> Very weirdly uplifting and optimistic. But yes, how do you guys feel about these the, the three different parts of A Clockwork Orange? It's, I think, especially with the epilogue, um, how I feel about that kind of translates to how I feel about the book in general is mm. that Burgess is a very talented writer and he's got some great ideas. Um, the the whole 21st chapter to signify the age of 21 and the maturity of it and the actual chapter itself replicating that's very, very smart. I really mm-hmm. like stuff like that. Um, I don't know if it actually does anything with the story. Um, I, more, more because I, it, the particularly you know, the open-endedness of something like this really helps hammer the message home. When you have a final chapter that says, and everybody was very happy, and everybody was fine, don't worry about it. He stopped all that murdering stuff. The prison worked, which it's fine. You know, it's all right. Um, So I've torn the pages of that last chapter out of my book. Uh, No, I haven't actually. I would never defile a Penguin classic. Um, (laughs) No, it's... I I, I can see why it's in there. I don't dislike Mm. that it's in there. I, I, I do like it as like the bookmark, the end of it. That is the end of that story. And it's a very clean cut. And and, and it's nice that it works both ways, you know, with, with the structure of this, with the three different sort of segments essentially. Um, you get the essentially the fall, the fix, and the rise, and it's it's very narratively streamlined, but in a way that allows Burgess to just manipulate characters to to explore them a lot easier. With that underlying structure, you've got a very primitive almost sort of set list of things that are going to happen you've got the the cause of the violence and then you've got the fixation of the violence and then you've got after the violence mm-hmm. and it works well because knowing that lets Burgess sort of experiment a bit better it, it lets him explore a little wider range because he he knows at the end of it it's got to tie to the end of that chapter it's got to make sense for the preceding chapter and it's got to make sense for what comes after it and having that structure in place is really good um and I, th- I think it translates well throughout. I really do. I think it it allows for those vibrant moments of horror. It allows for the hyper-violence. I didn't realise, because um, this may surprise you, I've made notes for this. Um, oh my god. The, the, the shocked face of Carson there tells you everything you need to know. The podcast <laughs> listeners will certainly appreciate the visual effects. Um, no, I actually made notes. I didn't realise this book was the origins of the word ultraviolence. And it's, it, you can kind of tell why. Um, yes. The thing about ultraviolence, and we'll get onto it when we get into the movie, is that mm-hmm. violence in, in media is so hard to perfect. It's so hard for it to actually have an edge to it now. It's so hard for it to actually cut through as like, oh my god, that's disgusting. And I think a lot of that, very off topic, but a, a lot of the problem with that is because of how violent horror films got and how just sort of torture porn they got. Like 24 hours or very graphic, very horrible, and people were acclimatized to that eventually. With Clock of Orange, you don't have that. This is a book released in the late fifties, I think, wasn't it? Early sixties. Early sixties. Ah, it's all the same those days. All all the hippies and uh, JFK <laughs> and all that. Stuff. Before we were born. Before know. we were born. Yeah, it, I'm a nineties kid. Ninety nine for me. So, um, 
Is no, that how it, it works? No, it's absolutely not. I've been told <laughs> several times I'm not a 90s kid, but I am a 90s kid. Um, no, uh, it, <laughs> it's to get back on point. It's it's a very stunning piece of fiction because of the. I mean, we spoke about it when we talked about inherent vice. The the beauty mm-hmm. of a, a book like this is that it really leans into the period of time it's in, and it, a clock occurrence doesn't do it in a traditional sense. It does it in the sense of this is something that audiences at the time probably wouldn't have expected. The violence of it, the genuine horror shows that are in there. It, it's a book that relies very heavily on ultra violence, on rape, on torture, and it's it's very very grim. And it, it's it's very shocking. Still, it's it's managed to retain that, and I do think that's because of the structure it has. Because of those three chapters in the epilogue, you have a very clear cut way of essentially going through all these details. You've got the the essential underlying pathway for Alex and the characters around him, and then you've got an absolute horror show. You've got torture of not just characters around him, but him himself. He he mm-hmm. goes through the ringer as well, and. It's just written so well. It, it it's really it was just such a treat to read and then reread because my memory's like a sieve. So we're grand. I mean, I think we needed to hold a moment of space to acknowledge that something this like edgy and this impactful came from ultimately a boomer. Like good on you. <laughs> In the darkest hour, who came through? The boomers did and gave us a clockwork orange. We're like these disgusting teens smoking outside. Like Sorry, I don't know if that's picked up. Tiny. I just cracked the cat off. <laughs> <laughs> No, I agree with you, and I find it interesting, though, your takes on the epilogue and the ending, because mm. I love that. I thought, like, oh. re-watching this, well, watching the movie and reading this back-to-back, basically, not having that epilogue made me drop the movie from 5 to 4.5, so mm-hmm. I'm very surprised that it seems like you're both so anti it. I think it adds, a like, another just great haunting level to it, and adds, you know, a development for the character that I think ultimately... When you talk about youth and growing up, it was kind of needed in a sense. Yes. So, yeah. I'm, I don't know. I, I think the speaking of the of the epilogue, it does make it more of a cautionary tale and it got a very unusual coming of age story. Um, yeah. Because if you, remo- you remove yeah. the dystopian element of it all and the sci-fi of of this weird future that Burgess has constructed, it can apply to to just being a teenager in general. If you take the extreme acts that the drugs commit and you just make them a bit more like, you know, teasing between adolescents and like uh, uh, having sex and uh, going around punching each other in street fights, nothing that has to be extreme to that level of what Alex does. But it can work as kind of this, you know, being an adolescent isn't easy. <laughs> we talked about that on an emotional level in Call Me By Your Name, but just, you know, there's there's a lot of confusion and madness going on in your head when you're that young. And some people have more of a control on it, and others just let their inner animals loose. Well, and that's so this entire book. Yeah. It's every yeah. element seeing the repressive come out and be, you know, every person in this book has some like dark, weird, gross thing about them, whether or not mm. it's they want to inflict violence on him when they finally get the chance or the woman who has all the sex stuff and literally has a gigantic penis that she gets hit to death with. Like it, every single character here has this like in what you would say in society is like this gross, you know, you what it's not. I, it's not necessarily your ideal Christian society, right? But mm. they are all hiding it. 
where Alex and the gang are not. They're going out and actively engaging with it, which is the difference. It's not that, you know, these two forces are different. It's just that they are expressing it and expressing that ultimate side of society, which is in the general public, very disgusting and is very disgusting. Um, I don't know. It was very interesting seeing literally though, especially in the film, because you can visually get it. Every single character have that side to them to where it didn't feel, I mean, obviously it is dystopian, obviously, especially visually, it's very different. It's an enag- it's an enigma of a world, but mm. it is not oh, necessarily no, that's, that's so what Britain far. looks like. That's, well, I assume knowing ja- <laughs> knowing Jack and confirm. Jacob, I assume Jacob's flat is like that. Sure. <laughs> um, I think yeah, because my initial issue with the epilogue was that does does a not not it's not necessarily a happy ending. I think I called it that earlier. It's not a particularly happy ending. It it it's it's a milestone. You know, it's it's the end of sort of childish behavior. You move on to adulthood. I think my issue was that to corroborate that is to imply that you know the the behavior of Alex is what a, a child would do. But I suppose if you look at it as like the innermost desires of an absolute lunatic, it does work. And it is it is a nice benchmark because I think it, it is... I mean, I, I completely forgot because obviously watching the film recently, Alex is 15, but that's a very young age. It's a very formative year. It's a very... It's a choice. Yeah, yeah. It, it exactly. It's He's old enough to know not to, you know, beat people to death with giant penises. Um, is he though? Which, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I like to think a lot of people learn at a young age don't beat people to death with dildos. That is a rule of thumb that a lot of communities do carry. Um, obviously, missed Alex. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's. <laughs> I'm just going to power on through. As a, <laughs> getting in dangerous territory here. <laughs> as as a, just a like, I don't know. I think the epilogue it does work. I don't have an issue with it. I just think I, I like open ended pieces i like to be able to sit there and think ah right okay and then i can just sort of deliberate on it because i think a lot of discussion comes from open-ended work because you get decades of people just arguing with each other over what it means rather Mm -hmm. than burgess essentially saying this is what it means which is actually quite nice in a way because it stops people from you know guessing and going down avenues of just poor thought but i still Um, think you get the debate you can still have a lot of the like i think the you get the result, but the inspiration for that result, I think, is very open-ended. Is it because that's just growing up? Is it the government? Is he this way because he is a kid, or is it because of society? Also, I know I joke that he's a um, boomer, but I genuinely think this is what he feel- thinks teens are like, is, like, to be oh, clear. Yeah. I think he's, yeah. like, that's where it comes in, is it's, like, we being just normal human beings are, like, that's very extreme. I guarantee you Mr. Burgess was, like, that's what they're doing. <laughs> oh, yeah, especially think about it, like, he was born when the first world war was happening so he's always been living in this constant like you know fear of bombardments and the first world war and then the second world war and these teenagers that he's seeing they are they came after that yeah they they were born after the war so they haven't lived any conflict they have a very different perception of the world of reality Add into that, you know, the 60s when uh, television sets are becoming more popular and you have movies that are starting to push the boundaries of what's allowed. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's interesting that he ended up writing it this way. And I think that um, the epilogue is some sort of 
wishful thinking in a way. Mm-hmm. In it, and I like that honestly. I have to say, I do like the the warm feeling that it leaves you. That like you know, everyone can change. That's yeah. kind of the way that I say it's, it's everyone can change. The the interesting question is why does it change? Is it is it still like a remnant of the Ludovico technique where he gets to the to the end and he just doesn't enjoy violence anymore? You know, so like yeah, he doesn't feel the sickness that comes with the technique, but did that change him? Did his experiences change him? Or maybe it's, uh, maybe just just being an adolescent, you know, you do a lot of shit and then it's like ah, I'm bored. Why did, why was I even doing that stuff? Do, what was I doing two years ago, five years ago? It's not even lot? me. A lot of it, I mean, even in the latter chapters, like, after he's been to prison, after he's been sort of, not brainwashed, but, you know, put in that big chair with the eye thing, which I, to this day, can't watch, because I I can't touch my eyes, I get really squeamish about it. Um, Oh, yeah. 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 Um, But even in the book, it's like, after all that, he's still in that system, he's still in the government system, he's working for the National Archive of Music, so he has had the therapy, the government has given him the therapy, and they fixed him. But now he's just another cog in that machine, where in the first few chapters, yeah, he was a demented, horrible person. At least he's not part of this, you know, dystopian little government thing. And it's, you know, it's hard to take much credit for that, where it's like, is he just lashing out of the system around him? Because it's so vile a series of events that he takes out on, you know? He's doing all this horrible shit as if it's an action against the government, but it's actually action against other people that are just trying to be like him, but hiding it. But then you also get like, I think the biggest part of this book and movie that don't work is the political like election shit that comes up. Cause like ultimately mm-hmm. no people are trying to use him. <clears throat> people are trying to use him for political gain. And it's just like a really weird side in this like anarchist kind of, well not anarchist, but like really lawless kind of wild time that you also have people like, we got to win the election. If we can get you to kill yourself, you, that would be good for our election. No, we don't want to work with you because it's good for our polls. Like it's a very weird side of the book that I don't, I think it just gets really confusing and bogged down because you can't like look at it as just like, if you can just look at it as one, like got the government that's easy enough you can break down and engage with but it's not it's ultimately one side of government trying to make it look like they don't have a failure but then that gets in the way of narrative work i think that's my least favorite part of the story oh i have to say that's actually that's grown on me over time both in the movie and the book because uh, it's you mentioned it earlier carson the fact that like everyone is ugly and everyone is an ugly side to them in this world and that's also part of it. It's that there's no good in politics whatsoever. Everyone just wants a piece of this man who's been a, who's was an abuser and now he's being abused himself, and they just want to use him as a puppet. It's like I'm gonna use. It. We don't care about him as a human being. We just want to use him for our own personal ends because we want to overthrow the government, and the government doesn't want any shit thrown at them. And and so it's. It's very pessimistic because there's there's just no good anywhere in this, and 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 it's very it's very bitter and part of the satire just kind of like, you know, the government is not doing anything to change the world, and there's even bits and pieces here where the criminal justice system is criticized because they don't have enough funds to have more jails and to have more personnel in the prisons. And it's kind of like, well, it's your problem, you know? <laughs> we're not going to give you more funds for that. If anything, we're going to invent a technique 
that makes people physically ill to the point where they won't do anything bad anymore. And this is a, going to lead to a utopic version of society where just, oh, there's no violence, no But hot no take, rapes, it no works. Nothing. Like, the government, like, succeeds. If it wasn't for the people abusing Alex after, the system worked. You reformed the kid and you put... Though? I mean, I th- if personally... Don't take this on the record, U.S. government. But if I had the option to spend 14 years in prison because I murdered someone with a large penis, or I can get out in two years and just get physically ill whenever I want to kill someone, I'll take that. Like, I don't know. It seems like a pretty good system. They won't, like, I don't know. I, I don't really get the whole, like, they're taking away his free will. They're taking away his free will to, like, rape people. Like, I think that's okay. We really are. I'm okay with that personally but, but that's who he is though and, and 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 which which sounds horrible sounds sounds very very fast saying it like that it's like that carson just leave alex alone okay he likes killing people shut up no but but that ah, but that that's the conundrum though that's that's why uh reading this it just gets me going because it's i love talks about ethics and sure. moral philosophy and and I kind of, have, uh, I think it's a very dangerous road to go down the Ludovico technique, sure. Because if you start doing it for that, especially keeping in mind this is like early '60s when he wrote the book, I like that. If that gets into the wrong hands, like we're talking about religious fanaticism that can be used and against like political prisoners, uh, it can be used like the freaking church weirdos want to have like uh, reform camps. For LGBT people, like it's, you can literally take it for anything. It's like, well, just spend two weeks in that chair and just, you, I don't know, just for, for anything. You can take it for anything. It's like, yeah, you don't want to eat hamburgers anymore. I'm just going to actually feel sick whenever I think of a hamburger. I, I do think that people have, have cheese. Oh, just <laughs> coleslaw. <laughs> or coleslaw. <laughs> but that's, that's why I like it. It's kind of like, that's what makes us human is the ability to, to mess up. Sure. And that's kind of like why the why I think it's more interesting to have a better prison system and the criminal justice system where it's like, you know, if fucks up, he pays the price and he pays it where we we take away the freedom to do it, where he just stays there and that's it. And it's not about him just kind of like, yeah, let him enjoy life actually being miserable. I don't know, it's very messed up because then you can go, but like, ah, oh, but the prison itself is taking away the freedom of doing those things. So they also, like, yeah. there is a side between, like, they also chose to include Beethoven, right? Like, you didn't have to do that. I'll give you that one. <laughs> it's it's worse in the in the novel because at least there because there it's just all music. Just, yeah. Oh, fuck, Jesus, just car walking past you on the street, just start dying on the on the road. But um, I think this is a good point to to transition a little bit into the movie as well. Um, 1971, as I mentioned earlier, directed by Stanley Kubrick, which I just realized is the first time this man has come up in any of our episodes. I think maybe of Clapton. And you don't have any more scheduled episodes with him. I checked, by the way. I was very. We 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 have more episodes coming. Do we with Kubrick? Oh yeah, we do. We do. I planned. Oh my god. Yes, we do. December, Carson. Look at December. Anyway, a Clockwork Orange. Directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring <laughs> and starring Malcolm McDowell. This oh, film this film was life-changing for so many people involved in making this movie and for people watching it. 
it shook the world. And what I find incredibly fascinating is that to this day, the film now isn't banned, I think, anywhere anymore, for good reason. But it is still surprising to me that it has an infamy about it. There's quite. I, I remember specifically, like in high school, last year of high school, my my history and Italian professor, she was a big movie buff, and she did talk about like Salo and other fun 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 movies, and we talked about A Clockwork Orange as well. And she said that it's it's one of those movies that it's very hard for her to watch despite not being bloody or excessively graphic. And she she finds the ending incredibly disturbing. And and rewatching it this time around for me, it was f- like that hit me hard because I loved this movie to bits when I first saw it, which was back in 2013. I saw it on a car ride in the back of a car. In the, when we were in Ireland of all places, I don't know why I had it on my tablet, but I just saw it like that, and I loved it. I managed to love it <laughs> even then. Um, but you're watching it now, especially the re- the restored version that has been released recently. Is the 4K is impeccable. It's on Amazon Prime as well. Bless them. Um, but there's so much fun. There's such a fun energy to it, and such a kinetic sense of style with the camera and the editing and Kubrick constantly blasting classical music and Beethoven especially throughout Malcolm McDowell is unhinged it's colorful as hell just just there's a lot of beauty in this which makes the horror of it all so much stronger and so much more emotionally affecting than I was expecting revisiting it so Carson how do you feel about the movie a clockwork orange i mean look if you're gonna make an adaptation from book to film probably the best first step you can do is to hire stanley kubrick sadly (laughs) not an option anymore but uh he has a pretty solid track record i think i'm willing to say um and the film is fantastic i mean holy shit right it especially on like just well okay i was gonna say on especially a visual level but it, mm. truly on every level, but I guess starting with a visual level, it drops you into this confusing dystopian world that's an enigma. It is half fantasy and gross and sexual with, you know, just continued displays of just horrific violence, but also sex. But then it's also half just like casual world. People have jobs. You're going to go, you know, pick through the albums. Um, and then it just is Stanley Kubrick, you know using some of the best filmmaking ever seen as with every single Stanley Kubrick film ever made, apparently um, to create this, just ultimately such a disturbing, such a captivating, you know, film that continually has you in the palm of its hands. You don't know who you're rooting for. You don't know who's a good guy. You don't know who's a bad guy. You're just every scene feeling different emotions for people. But I mean that in a very positive way, the performances, holy shit some of the best performances maybe seen ever like love the film it was a five-star film until i read the book in this back-to-back and i was like "Ooh, i like that ending better and that's a Mm. flaw and i can't give five stars to a film with a flaw in it so that's the one thing um i do think it is interesting though the book it's the movie is a much more confusing experience without the book there are things that stanley kubrick just doesn't bother explaining or like various things that happen that feel a little bit rushed like the gang turning on alex for example where like 
it doesn't necessarily feel like those are super well built, not that they're necessarily needed to be. But I will say as a companion piece with the book, even though it shows you the ending that you lack, I think it's nice to have a little bit more development with the world and various things like that. Um, but no, I mean, the movie's fantastic. I mean, it's a Stanley Kubrick film. I think he's the best filmmaker of all time. That's really all you can say, right? That's no lies detected there. Yuan, your thoughts on this, this beauty and Shrek. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, Shrek from 2001. <laughs> um, no. Um, Didn't Shrek debut at Cannes? It did, And yeah. I don't think this um, film did. Just saying. Um, well, we both know who... For I don't know where I'm going with that. We both know <laughs> who, and that'll do. Um, no, I, I'm pretty much just going to echo what Carson said, more or less. It's um, I can't think of a film where Stanley Kubrick's adapted it and the book has been better, which is a bit of a giveaway for the end of this podcast. But, Ooh, la la. Um, you know, you think of The Shining and um, the one that just left my brain. Literally just now, the other one. Eyes wide Come shut. That, no, the other one. Uh, two thousand one. That's the one. Very <laughs> <Buried in> them. <laughs> no, um, two thousand one. A Space Odyssey and The Shining. I think and... they mostly adaptations. Only to think about it. No, I think yeah. every most, if not everyone, he's done is an adaptation of even like um, maybe Doctor Strange Love is one. Pass of Glory, I think. Yeah, I think every yeah. single one is good for him. He had a real knack for it because. It, it wasn't as if he was just sort of ripping a book and throwing it on the screen. It was actually making it his own, more or less. And that was what got him in a bit of hot water with 2001. Um, <laughs> with this one, didn't he work with uh, Burgess on the screen? I think he did, yeah, because th there are a lot of... Um, like, it, it is a faithful adaptation, but there are a lot of changes in there that are small enough to go unnoticed, but big enough to be like, well, that's an interesting choice, and I'm not sure why he's done it. Like, um, mm -hmm. the reason for Alex being given the, um, the treatment is, in the book, I think it's he kills an inmate. In this, it's just he's selected by the ministry for speaking out. Little changes like that, I don't know why he's made, but it does work, and I've, I've no issue with it. I've no criticism of it, nor have I got anything amazing to say about it. I think it's tiny little things, like, he's got a pet snake, or... <laughs> Like just, <laughs> just little the reveal like of what happened. I like that. I could cry. That's the oh. tragedy of this movie. It's the most it's... innocent thing in the whole movie is the snake. <laughs> it's but yeah, um, it's a very very strong adaptation because it knows which bits of the text are strongest, and mm. it knows which bits of the text kind of need a bit of a reworking. Um, like Carson said, the the political side of it still suffers a little bit. But considering how much of the latter half of the film it forms, I kind of have to just accept it. You know, it's uh, Tristan Kubrick. He knows what he's doing, probably. Um, it's a very strong adaptation, mainly because I think it's it's one of the few Kubrick thing, films where I think he relies more on the actors and the performances than he does on his own direction. He's very happy and comfortable to let McDowell sort of just take the stage. It's the scene where he breaks into the house mm. and he starts singing "Singing in the Rain," and a lot of the camera shots are very extreme close-ups of people that are gagged and bound on the floor, or you've got very static cameras just letting the doll move around. And it's 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 uncomfortable because the camera is not moving; it's not mo There's no motion there. The only motion is coming from the perpetrator, and that is terrifying. And it's really well managed, and it's. A lot of static shots in this film. You know, you've got extreme close-ups of McDowell. You've got extreme close-ups of people he's abusing. Uh, 
it's it's very 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 good and i think it might be one of my favorite films from the technical side of it just the actual seeing how the camera's moving and how it's implying things about this character or that entity yeah. there is it comes together so well that it it really like most adaptations that Kubrick did it adds that layer extra to the book it, it's it's essentially there's the foundation sprinkle in some details and you just it flourishes so well it's incredible it's so so good it's it's fantastic and oh i th- i think what helped so much this time around is that i haven't seen any clips for it in quite some time i want to say maybe even years meanwhile the first time i watched it almost a decade ago jesus um, it was, you know, like you watch Top Ten, whatever bullshit, watch Mojo and whatnot back in the day. And you always find like the same scenes, the same moments, and they kind of lose power and they lose strength and all that. And and you're, you're, watch, like, you're watching the singing in the rain scene. It's scary. It's properly, <laughs> it's properly scary and disturbing and grotesque and vile and dirty. And Stanley Kubrick, to me, has always been very good at comedy, sometimes more explicitly than others, but just there's a lot of funny, funny moments in A Clockwork Orange. And the fact that he manages to have you laugh in one moment, where just there's right before the, 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 there's the home invasion scene, you have the drugs fighting another gang. <laughs> And almost every shot is them like throwing someone on a table or through a window. It's like how many windows are in this place? <laughs> Just people flipping over constantly. It's so funny. But even then, like the scene starts with that group of teenagers assaulting a woman that's just buck naked on stage. And it, you just feel like you said, Carson, as well, just those emotions where it's just you're laughing, you're grossed out. You're confused <laughs> mostly by what's going on, and it's intoxicating, and and it kind of works again with the first-person perspective because you're almost feeling the thrill of of those of those uh, moments of ultra violence that Alex so much loves and seeks out, and and you know there's other other bits of humor. I I love the sex scene in this movie. There's there's a threesome that they have with the. I don't remember Mozart's something march in the background, and it's all sped up, and it's sort of like having sex together, and then one of the women stands up, she gets dressed again, and Alex undresses her, and the other one starts dressing up. It's fun. It's very, very fun. But, oh, I... Malcolm McDowell is a treasure, and he did already quite a few movies beforehand. I haven't seen If... And like a whole trilogy that he made in the UK. I don't know if you've seen them. Maybe you and more well-versed in them. I don't know. But this, oh, his performance in this is literally one for the ages. He takes Alex and just runs with him. And it's great because it's no easy task to make you feel pity for someone as despicable as him. But when you get to the middle portion where he's just very bold in saying, I want to do the technique, I agree with you, Mr. Counsel or whatever, just there should be more space in prisons and whatnot. And when he starts like receiving the technique and when he is thrown back out into the world and is just despised by his parents, his old friends have become cops. (laughs) 
which is also a bit of commentary that's a bit, you know, just violent people want to become cops, want to become part of the police, of the justice system. You feel for him. You genuinely feel bad for the guy. And yes, how do you both feel about him and his performance and just the, the growth that he goes through, which is, to be fair, very close to that of the novel, but it feels kind of richer in some sense, except for the epilogue. Isn't his character, I feel like his character is the biggest change from the novel. Mm. Because, well, number one, I think he's fantastic. Let's not lie. Like, I think one of the biggest shames that he was not nominated for Best Actor, even though this movie did shockingly well, I thought this film would have just missed the Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Film Editing. Didn't win, but was nominated. Um, cannot believe he wasn't nominated. But um, I think Kubrick does a lot of work here to make him more innocent and, like, likable, if that makes sense. He's still revolting, right? He still kills and mm. rapes people. But, like, you mentioned that sex scene with the two girls. That's extremely differently played in the book. Um, when yes. he's in prison and he's, like, working at the church in the book, they make that much more vile of a thing than they do here. Here it seems like he might actually be kind of taking it seriously and enjoying it. Um, I think his character is probably the biggest change. But I think that's probably stronger to make the emotions of the ending play better, especially in a more condensed version, which is the movie. You don't get so much time between those scenes as you do with the mm -hmm. ending if you're reading the book. Um, but one of the all-time great performances, Kubrick really has a you know knack of finding like that one amazing actor and really like you know you have Jack from The Shining, you have Hal from 2001. I would argue that's the one from 2001. Um, yeah. He finds yeah. that one performance that's just like you know, one of the best performances of all time, casually, but is. It just took you in with that extreme close-up of his eyes. Yeah. First shot. Oh, and then it zooms out and dollies out. That's oh. kind of both. Oh. And his voiceovers, which, like, what a genius way to get a lot of the language from the book in there and kind of, oh, it's great. It's perfect. Yes. I mean, it's, yes. it's funny how, like, I don't know, we're talking casually about, like, one of the best films ever made. Like, it truly is on that level. It's terrific stuff. And we even talked about something like that with, with Inherent Vice, where by using the, by adding the voiceover element, which, you know, I mean, in this case, it was already written in first person, but by having the voiceover, you can get away with having quite a bit of the same dialogue, the same lingo from the book, which works so well. I feel like we glossed over that a little bit, the fact that Anthony Burgess pretty much invented his own language to, to, to write this, which is just stunning. Yeah, a mixture um, of uh, Russian, Slavic yeah, languages. <laughs> really, really phenomenal. Um, but that's enough of that. Um, no, Malcolm McDowell in the film, oh, phenomenal. Just amazing. I don't know if it's true, but I remember reading it years ago that after Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick just didn't speak to Malcolm McDowell ever again. And that was it. That was the end of their working relationship. They never spoke to one another after that. Um, probably a bit disturbed <laughs> after seeing McDowell wander around like that. I, I would be as well. Um, you know, a lot of this film relies essentially on McDowell's grasp of the narration. McDowell's ability to conduct the violence of essentially a deranged sociopath, but also at the same time keeping a spark of humanity within him so audiences can at least feel for him. And that's such a hard mixture. And it, and it's really well presented. And I think a lot of that comes down to you're seeing a man torture people, but then you're seeing him get tortured at 
not the same extent, but sort of the similar wavelength of it. And it's the implication of what he's losing compared to what he was taking from other people is really well defined. Um, and I think that's the great strength of A Clock of Orange is that the adaptation especially, it it helps to see a character who is so beyond the pale of what people should put up with. And it's, I think it is thanks to the performance from McDowell that we can actually not not feel for Alex, but at the very least understand the implication of what's happening to him. And I mm-hmm. think that's so important to how A Clock of Orange structures itself. If, if we don't understand why it's a bad thing that Alex is going through this treatment or why it could be difficult, even dangerous to apply in the real world, then then the the meaning of the whole text is lost, and it's 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 quite difficult to translate that to the screen, I think, because the I mean it's it's one of those films that at the time of its release was really pushing for the violence, like the book, and it 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 it, it broke new ground for what violence was for film. It was like the Bonnie and Clyde and Straw Dogs type of film where it's so in your face, ultra violent, obviously quite shocking, but now it's sort of you know ten a penny. I think, like the book as well, I do think A Clock of Grunge is still very disturbing. Um, it'll never lose that, because there's nothing more disturbing than seeing Malcolm McDowell just impromptu start singing Singing in the Rain and just destroying this couple's life. It's harrowing. And I think, you know, a, a lot of this film depends on McDowell. I think he is very much, it's probably the best performance of his career, but I've only, the only other films I've seen him in are the Rob Zombie Halloween movies and Home Alone 5. So I've not got much of a basis. I've heard he's good in Britannia High, uh, Britannia High, Britannia Hospital. Britannia High was a reality TV show in the UK. Don't worry about that. It's all up there, rent free. Um, But no, it is Caligula? Oh yes, he's in Caligula, isn't he? The fan film? The borderline porn Roman film. <laughs> the almost literal porn Tinto Brass <laughs> film, yes. Ah, brilliant. Yeah, because he went through a big phase in the 70s where he was in all sorts of really great films. And then the last thing I saw him in was a sequel to Hall of Four, which I, I don't get what happened there. I really don't. And it's a shame as well, because th- this is a stunning performance. It's probably, if it weren't for Jack Nicholson in The Shining, it would probably be the best Kubrick performance in film. I, I, I don't I'd know if that's put him there, honestly. I'd probably put him there at the, at the top. But I mean, uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Sorry. You... <laughs> that was just for a second. <laughs> him who? I do kind of get it, though, because, I mean, not to discredit his performance, but I, and I don't know him as an actor, so I'm not going to speak on his ability, but I could easily see this being, like, he exists where he can be weird and over the top, and he really can do no wrong like he is amazing Mm -hmm. but there's no way you can kind of do this performance wrong when he's like getting fed and stuff like he's making an absolute clown of himself but like i could see in a film where you're more required to be something he being not that person i don't know i I don't again i don't know his ability i'm not i should not speak on saying that he can't do it considering (laughs) i also just said he gave one of the best performances of all time but maybe who knows he's not very subtle and I wonder if it is, is uh, I think Clockwork Orange has become so iconic, properly iconic, and so, even legendary, we could say, just by the, everything that we just talked about, that there comes a point where 
a filmmaker hires Malcolm McDowell, and I mean, we talked about this on Uncut James Carson with uh, with the um, Halloween movies. With James Corden and Cats, right? <laughs> James Corden, yes. <laughs> and and he's a clown in that in those two films. And Rob Zombie hired him to be very over the top, very flamboyant. He did the same thing in Thirty One as well. Just it feels like everyone after the success of A Clockwork Orange, most filmmakers wanted to have Alex. They don't they don't want Malcolm. They want Alex. <laughs> they want that energy. And I mean, fair enough. But here it works brilliantly brilliantly and one thing that i wanted to touch on which kind of uh, you gave me the spark you and while you were talking is the fact that this film isn't very graphic in terms of like violence and blood we, we talked about er- earlier as well it's like there's no gore there's barely any blood i think it's just kind of like when he when he stabs the friend's hand the drug's hand <laughs> this is slow motion there's a bit of blood there just generally speaking, it's very tame. But I think the reason it works and the reason why it's so shocking and uncomfortable, even to this day, is the repercussions. And the fact that it's all taken very lightly at face value by the characters when they're committing those acts. Where it it jolts you in a very weird and unusual way to the point that if you don't have the second half where you see all of the people that Alex wronged and how it affected them and changed their lives. I think it wouldn't work nearly as effectively. And oh, just let's oh, and and that even works with Alex himself and the Ludovico technique. Can we just talk about that scene? That whole sequence in the middle. I'm like you and I can't watch it. I no. I don't do rough. eye stuff. <laughs> I don't do either. No. <laughs> There's I've, a... I've got an iron stomach but that it really turns <laughs> me like it just freaks me out I, I i don't like anything with eyes nothing i, I can't like even if I, I can't put my fingers near my eyes if i had to wear contacts i wouldn't be able to oh no no i can't no, no. touch my eyes i've Wait. tried i noticed I've we have tried. three glass glasses wearers today no contacts yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there's a reason for that. Yeah, these um, are my nice new glasses. After my old pair got blown away in a storm. I will say they're incredibly nice, you and I was going to comment on ah, that when we started. Much. They're um, they flew nice... away in a storm. <laughs> my my life, Nick, is a Tom and Jerry cartoon. That's what I live <laughs> my life with. You could do a, a sick. Storm, eh? You could do a sick Peter Parker from Spider Man the second one. Uh, with Tom, where it's the Tony Gla- uh, Stark glasses. Boy, I love how I forgot every name in a Marvel film because I don't like them. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> I love Marvel. I'll just put that on the record. I love it. Give me the product placement. Eternals, sponsor my favorite film of the decade. Yeah. Robbed at the Oscars. Robbed. I like the one. I'm shocked. I like the one that just came out. Um, Nick, I'm going to send you a voice pack of me seeing every new Marvel film, and every month or so, just update it, and we can just drop in the latest Marvel title. I love Moon Knight. <laughs> That'll do for now. Um, that that's the dream. And then Give I'll just money. I'll, just slap a four stars on it, that'll do. Yeah. That'll do. <laughs> but yeah, um, that sequence, man. What works about the Ludovico tech? Oh, I thought you were talking about Moon Knight. I was like, I don't know, I haven't seen it. Is it out? Moon Knight is isn't real. Malcolm McDowell's Alex cameo is fantastic. My favorite part of Moon Knight is I love how <laughs> Ethan Hawke is great in it. <laughs> five out of five. 
Well, you know, well, actually, no. Alex makes an appearance in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That's not coming digitally uh, de-aged. He was in Ready Player One, right? They were in that one. Space Jam. (laughs) They were in Space Space Jam. (laughs) Which, did you hear about the Matrix scene in Space Jam? Yeah. Why no, Carson? Enlighten us. (laughs) Let me tell you, once 4 comes out, it'll all make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to our good buddy, Ejectic Sharp. (laughs) For a brief period, if you went on the Wikipedia page for the Agent Smith character, it said latest appearance, Space Jam 2. It was like, oh, good I love that. The Wachowskis don't deserve this. <laughs> but um, back on point. Back, back on Ludovico. Um, Ludovico. Yeah, I think it's... You know, we, we kind of dabbled in the ethics of it. I, I don't know what to think about it, because it, it rips the free will out of it. But at the same time, it sounds like a punishment, where it's, if you think of the act that you're being punished for, then you are going to be punished physically. And it's it's an interesting system, because it I don't know. I don't know how I sit with it. I really don't know. Because it's a lot to sort of take in for someone that made a post-it note worth of notes. <laughs> um, I I do think it how it's shown in the film is incredible. What The, the bits I saw of it when I was shielding my eyes <laughs> from the screen. Um, oh, because it's real. That's the thing. Yeah, it's real. And it's, I think a lot of it helps that that image of Alex wide-eyed so synonymous with that film and with you know pop culture now. Mm. It's, if, if you say Clockwork Orange to someone, it's like you either think of the poster with Alex on the front, or you think of the the just the, I can't even bring myself to say it. Um, the the bit with the eyes. Uh, it's it's a phenomenal scene. Like it really is, and I, it's it's what benefits the film over the book is that all the Beethoven and Mozart mentions can actually be applied to the soundtrack. Yes. The, the beauty of film is that it is multi-layered. Um, I, I think it works so well, though. Especially the opening bit with the synth notes, right at the start, the very opener of the film. Incredible. Funeral of Queen oh, Mary. That's Funeral one. March, sorry. <laughs> Funeral March. Amazing. Oh, what what an opening, yeah. It's so stylish, just the whole way through. It is so convincing of a film. It's it's just so good. It's it's very hard to pinpoint what's good about it because it's essentially everything. Like it's so just throw a stone, you it. hit something perfect. You can throw a dart and it just land on something. It's like yeah, that's really good in the clockwork orange. It's like what, what more do you want? Yes, and uh, ooh, like Kubrick's talent in picking the right track for every single scene. It's like a very talented director. He did a lot of good things, but just that's one of the things that I love the most. Like, oh, so many good moments work just because of the song and musical piece that he put in the background. Like, there's some of my favorite soundtracks to listen to. I've listened to this soundtrack countless times. It's incredible. Like, Gazzaladra as well. That track, that moment of the, with the slow motion, just Alex dispensing some justice on the drugs because they disrespected him in front of everyone. It's like, well, I, I know what I have to do. And things like that, where you're reading the novel, like you just said, Ewan, and it's like, and I hear a music from a window that uh, pushes me to do this. And in the film, you're, you're, you're hearing his voiceover and actually hearing this music as well, just coming through. Oh, 
Well, and Ewan's credit, the just to find the perfect shot, the camera work in this film, not just with the stasis, but he knows exactly when to pick it up and go handheld and create an energy, a visceral energy and chaos on the screen or little editing things like during that threesome when he speeds it up like that is like you just sit there and you're like, that is genuinely the perfect choice. I don't know how, mm-hmm. you know, in every single second, every single frame, what to do that is perfect, but somehow you do it. it it's a wildly impressive. When when he hits the the cat lady with the with the giant dildo, and it's uh like the camera just goes through her mouth and then it cuts multiple times to like pop heart of close ups of mouths. Yeah, just you don't you don't need to see the impact, but you feel it even more. The <laughs> one thing I wish is that oh. white dildo was covered in blood at the end. Like when you pick it up, like that's the per- would have been just a little bit better, Stanley. I, I, well, I think it would have been banned probably in a couple more countries, but it would have been worth <laughs> even it. more countries. Yes, yeah, because you can see even her face on the ground. She's 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 fine. It's like yeah, she's all right. But it's, you know, the, the one scene that will always stick with me is when they they go back to the bar and the woman has just finished singing the opera mm. and Alex toasts her with the milk. It's just the the face and the just the surroundings of that the, the set design in this film is phenomenal the what, what's it called the Corova milk bar yes phenomenal yes. it's so good do you guys have them and in england because after this in cats i feel like it must be a real thing Corova milk bars not just uh, milk just bars in general that you can just say. pop open i don't assume um, you have that but i don't know if boris in, johnson in the is out there I'm sucking from. the tip but <laughs> i would not be surprised <laughs> true no in, in my places. town we have three pubs a charity shop and two Greggs, but one of the Greggs shut down, so we've got one Greggs. What the fuck is a Greggs? <laughs> oh, oh, oh Greggs is the stuff where dreams are made. It's like, you know, the bit in the start of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where the Candyman sings, Who can make a sunrise? Sure. Greggs can make a sunrise. Okay. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's so good. You ever had pastry? What? You ever had pastry? Yes, we have those here. Throw it out. Get rid of that memory. Get yourself to England. Get um, a bacon and cheese wrap, a sausage roll, and a steak. I do want to try a sausage roll really badly. Also, we don't have them. Had a sausage roll. They don't have them here. I know. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do I mean? They don't have them. You can't get a sausage rolls in. No, you can't get one. Probably for the better. Nick, have you got sausage rolls in Italy? No, I bet I had like. Dozens oh, in right. the UK. I have to pack some of my suitcase for Venice then. <laughs> I, what do you mean they don't have sausage? Is this just an English thing? I just thought sausage it's... rolls were universal. No, like sausage. Like honestly, sausages in general are primarily a British thing in the way you guys use them. No, but <laughs> just... you and I'm not like Nick. I'm jealous of it. I'm not like good on you. It's Too right. good on it's you. Fantastic. <laughs> I've, I've had like my dose. I've almost had a heart but attack once. I've always thought the prices of Greg's are so strange, and it's like. You can go in and buy like two steak bakes, a coffee, a bottle of pop, and like a gingerbread mug, like oh three pounds sixty please. And then you go in the other day, it's like oh just a steak bake please, it's like five pound. It's like whoa, what? It's like mad. Honestly, that's that's like deals. I need the Ludovico technique to make me feel sick when I walk past the Greggs because I know for a fact when I go to town tomorrow and I walk past the seven different Greggs in town, I might just pop into a few of them. Lovely place. Not just one, a few of them. You gotta stock up on sausage rolls. You never know when your last one's gonna be. <laughs> that is true. Well, we did used to do this where we, after the gym in the UK, we'd, we'd, we'd stop, not at Greg's, but just kind of other places, and just Don't buy... Don't say Couplins. Better not be Couplins. 
No, no, it was just get, kind of like local, I You can get local, four for a pound on sausage rolls, but you get quality over quantity, <laughs> We got the, We got, like, the big packs of sausage rolls, and we just eat them yes. on the way back to, yes. to the student yeah. residence. Oh. That's bliss. I remember when I was um, a bit drunk in town, uh, tried to get a sausage roll. Thought I had ordered a sausage roll. I had not. I had bought myself a bag of crisps. I wasn't even in Greg's. Very drunk. But um, you cannot beat a sausage roll. Like on, I, I, you can get them frozen. You can just buy them frozen and just throw them in your oven. 20 minutes. Just put a bit of butter on the top of them. Like paste it so it goes golden brown like the Strangler's song. Oh, Whack them out of the oven. Uh, oh. that's, that's, that's a bit much. <laughs> I mean, that's overkill. <laughs> it's a bit much. It's it's culinary classic it's what your if, body needs if anthony bourdain likes it then i don't see the problem <laughs> so anyway um malcolm mcdowell probably likes them actually alex probably likes them there is a lack of sausage rolls in anthony burgess thinks it's too revolutionary he's like that's gross <laughs> stanley kubrick's silence on greg's is deafening he really needs to come out and say something <laughs> If he doesn't say anything, it's because he's a liar. Doesn't want to get caught. <laughs> if he says nothing, he's a hack. <laughs> he's a hack. Yes, I'll just. Tweet what did he even do? <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. What did he do? He just took books and just made like. Is he even talented? <laughs> Probably not. Anyone could do that. Like he hasn't uh, directed a Marvel movie yet. Kind of says something. <laughs> no comic I, book properties. No I nothing. guarantee you, if he could, he would. <laughs> He'd do um. He'd make one vision. He'd do Fantastic oh, Four, but he'd do it right. <laughs> That's an adaptation I'd pay to see. Jesus. Sponsored by Greg's, Grant. of course. <laughs> um, um, I do want to mention one thing. Yeah. Um, no, nah, I don't know, mud. <laughs> I will say, um, it's the the bit at the end when Alex is in the hospital bed. I know, yes, let's still go to the end. Yeah, actually, I know yeah. Carson. You spoke about you know you like the epilogue. What? And then you know the film dropped a bit when you, you know, when the epilogue wasn't there. What was it? Was it? Was it anything in that last bit that was like, yeah, it's not as strong as the epilogue. No, like I said, when I didn't like have the context of the book fresh in my mind, it was a five star experience. I think it's a wonderful, a love, you know, well, not lovely. It's quite disturbing, but it is a great <laughs> ending. It's just when you have that little bit more character development, which I personally like, and it shows the growth of the character, not like ultimately as the character, it just feels a little bit like you could have gone a little bit further, which is the opposite of Call Me By Your Name, which I hate the epilogue. I'm happy they dropped it. We talked about that, Nick. Yeah. But um, it's just it's that little like I think that in the moment of him realizing what he's done and kind of like growing up, I think is more poignant than the moment of him experiencing violence again so it's just you're removing the more poignant piece in my opinion but like it's still amazing it's still 4.5 it's to me it's very interesting the ending because it ties back to the whole conversation we had about like you know the, is the Ludovico technique good or bad and it's I, I see it both in a very depressing way and in a very almost uplifting way in the sense that bad because you know it, it gets back the lust and the joy of violence and sex in this very like orgiastic operatic final shot of him it's beautifully done but just chilling the way 
shows that image and then it's like I'm cured all right and then just singing in the rain starts it's like jeez fucking hell what that's, that's one way to close a movie very memorable very effective but they also see it in a relatively positive way because ultimately he becomes like he gets he regains his old like free will and what I find what I like to believe is that by not showing what happens afterwards, it does leave you with a bit of a bitter taste in your mouth because it's like, geez, it's not going to be up to anything good. But maybe he will be able to change on his own. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe not. Probably not. I feel like going even a little bit further and just like, because there's a contradiction in there that the government likes him, gives him a job, even though he's not changed, showing that they don't really care about change. Even if you had that final scene, it flashes like three years later or however long later. And you see Mm -hmm. him working at the government, doing the music stuff. And he looks down the hall and he sees that. Like, at least it gives that contradiction. Because right now, you don't really know that they're going to give him a job. You don't really know what is to come next. And I think that contradiction in itself is very powerful, even if you want to remove the, the, you know, understanding that he has with that reflection. I think if you just go a little bit further in the book, you get so much in that. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I, I will say about the Ludovico technique. I've, I've a, a neighbor's kid just keeps yelling. I don't know if you can hear that. But <laughs> Sounds I, like I'd a dog love, barking. Yeah, I'd love to put them through the Ludovico technique to make them feel physically ill every time they shout because they would never speak again. Little prick. But yeah, other than that, yeah, I think it's really good. The Ludovico technique is very good. That's that's the point. Yeah, I think we actually stand. No, no. <laughs> I I don't know because it's. I mean, the issue for me is that I haven't thought about it enough. I do think any a a, a, a very like knee jerk reaction, any form of therapy that is changing a, a a perception like that quickly, and it's actually restricting someone from acting on their own free will Mm. it just sounds bad but then you know especially with the epilogue it actually does seem to have been successful in the book it does seem to have been a a type of therapy that has succeeded it's whether or not we should trust the government body with that sort of altercation essentially if we should trust a, a, a body ran by the state to say we can fix people's brains to do what we tell them, essentially. Which is always terrifying, you know? Um, it's very 1984 of them. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, th- I think it's so interesting. Um, it looks... I, I think that it borderlines on torture, the presentation of it in Kubrick's film, mm-hmm. where he's just being shown these flashes of imagery and he's having injections into his eyes and it's it looks grim. And it it begs the question of whether or not that is a worse punishment than actually being in prison. Mm. The two weeks of torture to then go on to be violently ill if you think of, you know, whatever your crime was, compared to 15 to 25 years in a prison cell. It's interesting. Food for thought. Uh, yeah. I think ultimately, what one thing that we didn't even touch on is the role of the parents of, of Alex, because they are present in both book and film, and they're they're very absent-minded. They don't really care about him that much, and when he comes back afterwards, like they didn't know he was coming back home. They are afraid of him. They don't have even a, a spare bedroom for him, and then they kind of take him back after his attempted suicide. 
But I, I want to f- believe that Burgess and Kubrick, even in a way, they want to remind people in a very subtle way in this in this context. Just you know, I think people aren't inherently violent or 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 even good. Honestly, I think the upbringing is very important. As, as well as human, as, as well as the nature of the human being, because it's not like some things you cannot change, and that's how it should be. And and the fact that all of the like all of the adults are kind of like the boomers that you said, Carson. Like they are all very like constantly judging, constantly yelling at those that are young, and they're afraid of them because they're running the country to shits. And the, the police force is brutal, and ultimately the police force hires hoodlums to take part in it. There's no real attempt to change things at their core. It's either fixing human beings afterwards because it's like, oh, you you killed a woman, we're gonna change that, and uh, and just all of that. Uh, there's poor people just on the street doing absolutely nothing, left on their own devices. Just no one cares about them. They get assaulted. Probably no one even like even if the guy went to a police station, they would have laughed at him when he got assaulted in the opening. So there's there's this constant thing where. No one wants change. It's all about fixing things with a band-aid afterwards in the worst possible way. And I think I think we're seeing it even now, honestly. And if you think about it, even all of the you know the attempts at having defund the police and whatnot, what changes have they brought in the long end? Have some change, some good changes come, but I don't know. It feels like we're still kind of especially in the era of internet um, and the web just the manipulation of media and information is even more twisted now than it was in 1964 when it was just the newspaper <laughs> which that's also is an element of the ending where just uh, alex is changed so much through the media's portrayal of him it's crazy i for one am shocked that posting those black squares on instagram didn't refund didn't defund the police and change the system i really thought that was gonna work guys Blackout. Oh my. That's because I didn't do it. If I did it, probably that would have the one they, they person. They would have listened to reason. Yeah, would have listened to it. It's like yes. If Greg's had done it, different story. I, well, <laughs> it's I their bet. fault. I, I feel like Greg's is was the first one that's like a rainbow flag in June and a, a black logo in February. Oh, <laughs> you need to have a rainbow sausage roll. That's iconic. They got vegan sausage rolls. Oh, that's close enough. It's like, Ooh. to be fair, they're actually meant to be quite nice. I've not eaten it because I, I am a meat eater, so I, I will not. I will have you <laughs> no, know, I'd in like my city during this podcast, I did research and I found a British bakery that supposedly Ooh, sells jumbo sausage rolls. They only it's their only sausage roll, so I don't know why they're specifying that it's jumbo. But I might try to go get one. That, it's yeah, not a Greg's that, though. A... It's called. How is it a British bakery if it's in America? Oh, it's British, right? Never mind. <laughs> uh, speaking of vegans and sausages, if you if you have an IKEA near you, I had the vegan sausage at IKEA, the vegan hot dog. Love it. And it was like 50, 50, I don't know, it was like one pound, something like that in the UK. It was insane. IKEAs are lit. IKEA meatballs. Oh. It is almost oh, oh. dinner time. This is helping. <laughs> yeah, I've got oh, my oh. my liter of coleslaw on the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, the... <laughs> I, I opted for the smaller option, which was oh, nice. five hundred milliliters, which is still a lot of coleslaw. I think 
I yeah. think it's half of the original song. I'm not paying six quid for a leader. That's barbaric. <laughs> I, I think this is a good moment since dinner is approaching um, and Carson's day is starting basically now. <laughs> <9 10 a. laughs> yeah. um, why don't we go into our final thoughts on A Clockwork Orange and ultimately, which version do you prefer? The book or the film? Carson, let's start with you. I mean, look, this is... Me, well, no, this is pretty close. It's not the because Come by Your Name really is a toss up. Um, I'm gonna mm. go the movie, but like the book is phenomenal. It's not a easy victory, but like it's Stanley Kubrick. It, you know, it is a victory. If if the movie, do do you think the movie would be better if it had the book's ending, like same movie yes. plus the extra? Okay, nice. But I think the ideal way probably to do this is to do both. Hmm. Interesting. Ewan, how about you? Um, I think it's, you know, the, the nice thing about A Clockwork Orange is it feels a bit like if you want a copy of it, it's nice to have on the shelf. You know what I mean? It's like that feeling of, I don't know if I'd go back to it anytime soon, but just knowing that it's behind me next to, like, Nick's getting his copy now. I'd get my just copy, to show but I'll how sad it wire. is. Oh, you've got very different copies. Oh, it's the one without the Oh, that's sick, cover. though, that it says Band that's Bugs. Really cool. That's great. It says Band Bugs. I'd grab mine, but it's just the paperback Penguin Classic. It's got a big glass of milk on the front. Just Google it. I'm lazy. Um, no, I, th- I think it's it's like one of those books. It's like having a Philip K. Dick book on your shelf. or It's it's just good to have it there. It, it's, a, it's a cornerstone of writing because of how much it's influenced and how huge deal it was at the time and how huge a deal it still is and it's the same goes for the film mm-hmm. which um is better than the book uh primarily because the changes that kubrick can make to this are the bulk of it pretty positive um no major changes no no derailing of characters no complete change of concept or mood or tone or message mm-hmm. um the real great thing about it is it essentially emphasizes the points of the book it 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 brings that multi-layered facet that films can always bring it adds the music it adds the meaning a bit clearer it it chops and changes the ending a bit but like carson said it probably would have worked if both were in there um but but to think of everything that came before that ending essentially it's it's monumental it's truly horrifying and it's the fact that it's it's the only Kubrick film i can think of where he's so dependent on the actor He's so willing to sort of let McDowell take center stage because a lot of Kubrick's films, it's primarily the talking point is, wow, what a great director he is! What what a phenomenal eye he had for the technical gifts and the photography and the set design. With, with *A Clockwork Orange*, it's bloody hell. Malcolm McDowell's put a shift in here. He's proper good, um, which is something you don't quite get with his other films. I mean, that's to be fair. It's like *Clockwork Orange* looks stunning there's no denying the technical merits of it but mcdowell manages to just surpass those with with probably his career best performance yeah i i think um um full metal jacket's first act comes very close but it's not for the entire movie because he dies lee rv oswald no lee rv jesus no our no our <laughs> wrong name wrong name our lee harvey no <laughs> is it the same the shining also Ernie. comes close Shining does come close. Shining. Yeah. Yeah. But not, yeah, I agree with you, and this is the number one for that. No Tom Cruise? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't no. know. Um, 
Mick Jagger was meant to be uh, Alex. It was meant to be a Rolling Stones movie directed by Ken Russell. And they oh. bought the rights for $500. <sighs> oh, man. Oh. We have dodged several bullets. No. I mean, Ken, Ken Russell. Russell. Grand. I mean, to be fair, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Performance. <laughs> Would have been a very different movie. <laughs> very different. But, you know, just... I I oh I have to agree. I I do think I prefer the movie for all the reasons that you guys said, but also because it's properly timeless. There are so many. I I love older cinema. It's it's a known fact. But there are still times where I'm watching like a 1960s movie or you know, 70s movie. It's like eh, it feels a bit dated. I'm watching Clockwork Orange and it's like, bam! Like it works. Every choice in the camera, in the acting, in the sound. Like, it looks great. It's dated like fine wine. Brilliant. But I also have to say, like, the book comes very close. And I think the fact that it's it's a very short read, even if you're having troubles with the... with the uh, Nidsat... What's Nadsat uh, dialect that he invented, it is short enough that it doesn't really, like, slow it down, the reading of it. So I, like, I mean, if you're listening to this and you got this far, you know, just, you know, <laughs> Clockwork Orange is brilliant. So get both. Get both if you can. There's the new restoration, which is fantastic. And I'm beating myself up that I didn't watch on the big screen. I don't remember when it came out, like a couple of years ago, I believe, like before COVID, right before it, there was an anniversary, anniversary, whatever it happens. But yeah, this, this is it for our episode, episode number 14, which is nice. We'll... We're going up, we're going up with the numbers. So why don't we go around the table and share where the listeners can find us? So Carson, while Yuan preps himself up uh, <laughs> for his uh, favorite part, yeah, yeah. why don't you go first? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at bp underscore movie reviews, Letterbox Carson Tamar. Listen to Clappercast at Clapper Podcast yes. on Twitter. Yes, short and sweet. Yuan, <laughs> is it going to be short yeah. and sweet? Or no, sweet, you know what's sweet. <laughs> sweet. You can get me on <clears throat> You can get me on Twitter and Letterboxd at you and Cleto. E W A N G L E A D O W. Not Evan, not Ethan, not Etan. Ewan. That's an Italian saying it. Yeah. <laughs> or Eaton Cohen, who did Garfield the movie. I didn't know he produced some episodes of King of the Hill as well. But Joel Cohen's brother? <laughs> Yes, that's, <laughs> that's the, one. the same one. Um, you can get me on my writing and stuff on Cult Following, Clapper, Geek Show, Pop Screen Podcast, Uncut Gems, sometimes uh, Death by Adaptation, Newcastle World, Daily Star, Spark Sunderland, um, Spotlight, Any Volume, Narc Magazine. Uh, that, that'll do. It's a, it's a I, I can list. just feel my brain like snapping. It's like you've left someone out, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know anymore. They're probably going to fire you. It's like, we don't want Pro- to be writing I, I for us so, anymore. Then I don't have to write for so many bloody places. <laughs> it's hard to keep track at this point. As soon I, as I'm finished here, I think I'm meant to be writing a feature on uh, wrestling. And then I'm... Um, uh, what am I doing? What day is it? It's the 26th it's, of March as we're recording this. I have asked, what everyone. feature are you writing on wrestling? <laughs> uh, I'm writing a feature on Edge. Oh, uh, God. His upcoming WrestleMania match. Don't oh, talk. Don't talk. Don't mention that to Elena. Elena will let her like cry of happiness. <laughs> Someone else is talking about it. Oh, Tag her under the article when once it's out. 
But yes, you can find me in all of those places and hurl abuse at me like you're an ABBA fan or a Bob Dylan fan or, you know. Or, it, it, they won't stop yeah. coming, you know that. They won't stop they, coming. They, see, they don't. They just just don't. wait for when we talk about Bob Dylan, maybe. I'm later so scared this year. for that. I can't believe I, I suggested it. Oh. You're a masochist, you know it. Just accept it. You <laughs> nah, like it. Yeah. You lo- you love the attention and the pain that it comes. It's, it's, it's why I'm a journalist. It, I do this for the clout <laughs> and the gains. <laughs> anyway, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at nickryan 97 and there you can find me at Linktree, Linktree forward slash Enjoy the Movies, where you can find links to my short films and videos on YouTube and Vimeo, my letterbox, my everything is there, including my articles for Clapper. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, Instagram, Death by Adaptation Pod, and Twitter, just Death Adaptation where we just share simple photos because I don't have the time to stay behind social media. It's a lot of work. And also be sure to check out the Uncut Gems podcast where every week I'm with my good buddy, Jakub Flash. And right now we're, 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 we're talking about some interesting 1980s action classics. So tune in for that. In two weeks' time, I just checked because it's we're pre-recording this. In two weeks' time, we're talking about filth. Which I know is yes. one of you. Oh, fantastic! Yes, and oh. if all goes well, we'll have a guest as well for that episode. So fingers Will crossed. We? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh. A buddy of mine. So <laughs> be sure to, to stay tuned for that. And yes, thank you very much for listening. We hope to hear from you soon. Bye bye. Don't wave. <laughs> <laughs>